I'm Jeff Cohen. Is it possible to be a world-class musician and a congregational rabbi? Today's guest, Rabbi Greg Wald, has flourished in both endeavors. He's known affectionately as the jazz rabbi, in part because he discovered Judaism through music. Rabbi Wall's unique journey to Jewish observance makes him one of the most unorthodox, orthodox rabbis you'll ever meet. Let's hear his story. Rabbi Wall, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. So the fact that you discovered Judaism through music tells me you were not raised religious. Is that correct? Yes. I had a, I guess, a typical suburban upbringing, but uh, we, I wouldn't say I come from a religious home at all. Okay, so where were you born and raised? I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and at a young age, we moved to Framingham, about uh, 30 minutes away. I was raised there and had my bar mitzvah in a reform synagogue, and uh, afterwards, uh, I was done like everybody else. (laughs) But you went to Hebrew school to get ready for the bar mitzvah? I did. I did. I enjoyed it. Okay, and was your family doing any of the Jewish customs in the home? We lit Hanukkah candles. And we always went to uh, a Seder. So from what you've described, it doesn't sound like ultimately becoming a rabbi was in the cards at a young age, but was music something that you were thinking about while you were young? It was. I was always drawn to music. And in fact, my parents always told the story how they could park me for hours in front of a piano or an organ or any musical instruments that happened to be in the homes that they were visiting. And uh, I could occupy myself for long periods of time at the piano. Uh, And that was basically until my parents actually got a piano and I started taking lessons, and then I lost interest. (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying that as soon as parents start supporting your journey, that's when it ends? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) But the piano was always around, and uh, the fact that I had it around, I would go from time to time. And then when I started getting interested in music again, it was really great to have there. But did you think it was actually going to be a profession in some way for you, or you're doing it more as a hobby while you were growing up? Well, I, I didn't get serious about music until I was in high school. I enjoyed singing, and when I was in middle school, I joined the, the school choir. I was the only boy in the school choir, <laughs> and... Uh, had to defend my honor on a few occasions. Uh, Wait, that's a good thing or a bad thing when you're the when you're the only no comment male there the either. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I went to high school, I signed up for the chorus, and they had there's a serious music department at the high school. This was Framingham South High School, and I realized that I, you know, my good ear helped me in in serious choral singing. And uh, I was selected to join uh, a, a special statewide chorus that you had to audition to get in. And that was really an amazing experience hearing, being part of 200 voices who could all sing in tune. And that sort of cemented my love for music. And then I think the following year, I started playing saxophone, much to the dismay of my parents. Why do you say that? Because the band met at the same time as the advanced track math classes. Uh-oh. I was in the advanced track, and after I wanted to you know, join the band, it was a, a huge scene. Well, I'd have to be there at that particular class period, but uh, I managed to pull that off. Is, wait, is that where the conversations with your parents are saying, I know you see this academic progress I'm making, I'm in the enrichment classes, the advanced classes, but there's something here in music that I want to pursue? What were those conversations like? They, they weren't 
fun conversations. They thought that, you know, somehow being in, in and I didn't in, really enjoy math until, and I later on I realized that music is math and I enjoy experiencing math through sound and through music and music theory. So I think when they saw that I was getting serious about music and that there was an academic component to it, and we had college level music theory classes at the school, which I took and uh, and I aced the uh, advanced placement test in, in music, they felt a little better about it. Did you then go to college to continue pursuing music? Like, where did you go and what were you studying? After a year at the University of Massachusetts, and that was basically giving it to my parents who thought that music, they still hoped and prayed that it would go away, like all the other hobbies that I had shown uh, enthusiasm and great promise because of you know rapid achievements. They hoped that that would... Uh, be the case here, but it wasn't. So I went to the, a state school, even though I had been accepted to a, a few uh, serious music programs at other colleges. Oh, you could transfer later. And then at UMass, I really fell in love with jazz music. And I took a year off. That was World War Three, right there, taking the year off. Oh, college dropout. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I took a year off and practiced all day long. And I ended up transferring to the New England Conservatory of Music. And uh, so I'm a graduate of the New England Conservatory. So how did you know, though, as, as a freshman in college, like it's one thing to say, I'm getting into this instrument and I want to play. It's like a whole other level to say, I'm going to stop my education for a year and I'm going like all in on learning this instrument. Like how did you get to that point in your mind? So the path that was offered to me by my parents is you can go and you can, if you want to be a music major, you're going to major in in theory and composition. So you have something to fall back on. <laughs> Little did they know that a degree in music theory doesn't qualify you to even uh, you know, drive an Uber. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I was, a, I was a composition major. And I realized that composition majors in undergraduate didn't even get to write music. It's just a ridiculous setup. I was actually taking graduate classes when I was a freshman in college because I, basically I was prepared because of the high school music theory background that I got. I mean, two years of really high level and I did some c composing then as well. But through a, a wonderful opportunity to write music for a student production uh, of, of, of a theater piece, they wanted a, like sort of underscoring. And I met the director and she played me a recording of Miles Davis's In a Silent Way. I had never heard it before because I was you know, pretty much classically um, focused at the time and not like Mozart uh, classical, but more, you know, contemporary challenging music. But I heard this and I was so captivated by it and it made me want to figure out how they made that record. And, and I realized that there's a lot of improvisation going on, and that became my focus. And I realized I had no idea what I was doing as a saxophonist. So hence the, uh, the early retirement from the University of Massachusetts. And that really paid off. I told my students later on, you got to be careful. If you practice, you might actually learn how to play. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that works out for you, and you're obviously mastering this instrument and what are you thinking you're going to do? I wasn't do? mastering it I, but I was uh, I was finding out more about what I didn't know which is a prerequisite to, to learn more. So what did you think you were going to do? Like what was your plan sort of after you got back into education you got better at this instrument like where did you think it was going to go as you head into your early 20s? Oh I wanted to play 
And I, all the things that my parents were afraid of is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to play the saxophone and write music and play my own music and also learn you know, about the system of being called jazz. And that's what I wanted to do. And I was very, very clear. So I finished the conservatory and I did what any aspiring jazz musician does and moved to New York. Okay, so... Just before we get to that move to New York, I've interviewed enough people now where if they're going to be a musician, an artist, an athlete, there's always this push-pull with the parents where the parents want you to be in something safer, something reliable, where you're not going to be living in their basement. But then if you can get to a certain level of success, they can come around and be like, I always knew you could make it, but it's not easy for parents. Exactly. As I grew, my parents grew also. God bless them, and they should live and be well. They came a long way as well. My first semester at UMass, I ended up playing in an improvisational jazz group led by a a wonderful bassist named David Wortman of blessed memory. He died uh, way too early. And uh, we were doing a concert with an ensemble of dancers. His girlfriend was a dancer. So uh, I invited my father or my parents I guess my mom couldn't go but my dad came and he drove two hours uh, to Amherst to see us play and he tells the way he tells the story that after about 20 minutes or so of uh, the of hearing you know all these random sounds which he thought were people tuning up or something he goes to the person sitting next to him he says well, when's the concert going to start she said it started 20 <laughs> minutes ago afterwards he was like you're going to school to learn to play this <laughs> it was, uh, uh, fast forward at the uh the last year of my uh time at the conservatory i had started uh, a group playing traditional New Orleans jazz. I, I wanted to learn how to play the clarinet, and I really, I needed an outlet for the clarinet. And we were playing a jazz brunch at uh, one of the jazz clubs in town that had uh, famous people playing during the week. But on Sunday morning, we played there, and my parents loved coming there. And all of a sudden, I was doing something that they could relate to, and they took a lot of pride in that. So you just mentioned uh, before that story about moving to New York, Mm -hmm. and I saw in your bio that that is also where you had this first kind of encounter with Orthodox Judaism related to lessons that you were taking. Can you share that story? Sure. So, you know, it says in Pirkei Avot, you got to go and find yourself a a Rav, a Rebbe. So I moved to New York, and the first thing I did was try to find a Rebbe. And uh, someone gave me a copy of the local 802 phone directory, and in it were the phone numbers of all my heroes. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I needed at that time was discipline. The music that I had been playing was very free form. So I called George Coleman. George Coleman was a, came to, to fame as a member of one of Miles Davis's groups from the 1960s. And it's the first group that he had with Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter and a young Tony Williams. He was a, He represented a disciplined approach, and he was very focused and disciplined, and I gained an awful lot studying with him. And uh, he had a one-bedroom apartment on 14th Street. My lesson was Thursdays at 3 o'clock, and at the end of my lesson, I would see the next student come in, and this basically was like a waiting room. You just open the door, you sit in the couch, and whosoever lesson is in progress, it goes on until he's done. And then, you know, you see. so the guy who came after me he had a beard and a yarmulke. 
said hello to him a couple of times. I don't think I ever introduced myself. I don't remember. Anyway, fast forward uh, a couple months, and I get a phone call. And I said, hey, Greg, uh, this is Mayer. I said, Mayer? Yeah, from George Coleman. And, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, somehow he got my number. My mother had always told me that Hasidim were crazy. And uh, this guy told me he wanted to study with me. <laughs> so I said, that proves my mother was right. This guy was crazy. You know, he was arguably one of the greatest saxophonists of all time. And, and the, he's calling me because he wants to study with me. Little did I know about uh, what we fondly refer to as hashkacha pratit, that, that this is how... How uh, God was working through Mayer, but uh, it was, it, I, I had, was conservatory trained. George Coleman was self-taught, and uh, he ended up coming to me for saxophone lessons. I was living in Jersey City, and through him, I, I ended up uh, getting that a, a phone call on a fateful June Monday afternoon. Hello, Greg. This is Yossi Pimenta. Great, <laughs> late uh, Yossi Pimenta. And uh, they had a big wedding in June, and he needed a saxophone player. And uh, I said, who gets married on Monday? But I said, sure, I needed the money. I was hungry. So uh, I went up to the Marina del Rey in the Bronx, and, and, and I, I felt like I met my long-lost brothers. There were Yossi and his brother Avi, and uh, the drummer Rami Levite, and I believe they're, uh, um, it's either their brother-in-law, Dr. Joe Mir playing bass, or maybe uh, Moshe Antelis, who was Michael Antelis at the time, and then about ten old guys who had all retired. You know, you had canes and hearing aids, and they, because what happened was that the Piamentas waited until the day of the wedding to hire their fifteen-piece band, <laughs> and and. Uh, I felt like I met my long-lost brothers, and so uh, I had a great time. And I said, wow, this is Hasidic music. This is Jewish music. I love Jewish music. I later found out that it wasn't Jewish music I loved. It was the Piamentas I loved. But, you know, through that, I was able to learn enough of a repertoire that I was able to make start making a living playing music for the first time. And weekends, I would play jazz or I would go back to Boston because that's really where my connections were. But Sunday, I would always play two weddings and you know, in season, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. And it was very nice. So that was sort of subsidizing my jazz habit. So the, the guys who are in the band, though, they're all Orthodox, the primary guys, at least? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're learning to play Jewish music, but you're also seeing, I think, this like lifestyle that they're leading you. You're probably noticing them eating kosher food and the praying and stuff like that. So you're That's getting right. exposure to that. And what are yes. your thoughts about what you're seeing? Because I'm, I'm, it sounds like from your story, you're not religious really at all at this point in your life, no, right? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, this was just a, a year or so after uh, I remember saying to people, if they'd ask me if I was Jewish, I'd say, no, my parents are. I couldn't identify with my Jewish background at all. And here I'm seeing these great musicians who I, I loved as people and respected as artists. And, and I realized that they were serious musicians who happened to be making their living by playing at Jewish weddings, but they played with the same love of music that they would playing it anywhere. They play in a club, they play at the wedding. Maybe the songs they play would be different, but not the way that they played them and not the, the passion that they had. But the, uh, the, their Judaism was so integrated. And, you know, oh, it's time to daven. Many times they would ask me, oh, we need one more for a minion. And I would just stand there. I didn't know anything. 
Mayer, my saxophone student, um, who can, comes from a, uh, a Jewish community where doing kiruv is, is very, very important. So he asked me uh, one day if he could daven mincha in my house. And it's I didn't even know what that was. Yeah, knock yourself out. And then, of course, the next question, oh, would you like to put on tefillin? And since I liked him so much, I did. So I put on tefillin. He invited me to his house for Shabbos. You know, I got there, and the place is set up. He lived in Crown Heights, of course. And uh, the table set up beautifully with these huge, big home-made chalas and all the kids lined up in size order. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. I hated it. I had the worst time because everything I did was wrong and you know and you, know, you can't do that you can't do this but they weren't rabbis they were really nice guys but they didn't really know how to introduce it to me so then after that is how when I met the Piamentas, they didn't try to do anything like that with me at, at all they were just basically doing the most what I think is the most powerful tool of Kiruv is just be yourself if people see that your religious lifestyle is adding to the quality of your life and and is making your appeal that much more so then that's really is going to make people ask questions and be curious and that's what really will work for me so i think the pimentas were really uh prime in that so if you contrast those two stories it sounds like the one with with your student maybe it was like too much too soon and too much negativity around that you can't do this you can't touch that this is muksa etc but then the experience you're having with the Piamentas is more them modeling their lifestyle for you with no pressure. And you're sort of, you're exploring it by just being around what they're doing. Yes. But um, I, again, I, I really have to be um, really uh, very clear that my student was, is, is, was and is a really good guy. He was an aide at my wedding. It was just the Shabbat that was too much for me. It's, I, I couldn't deal with this Shabbat. It's, but it's, he was never really judged me or anything like that in general. It was just the, the topic of the conversation uh, at the Shabbat table, which was a, a different type of discipline. I mean, I had discipline. I practiced every day. I practiced in those days. I practiced all day long. But that was a very different type of, of, of discipline, you know, to really sort of subjugate your desires for a higher purpose that was intangible. You know, music to me was tangible. It's like, you know, I had an instrument in my hand. There was sound I could hear. But, the, you know, the Piamentis was, was, was a different experience. And I think the most important thing out of that experience was it opened the door for me to play with other groups in Jewish music and be around Jews. And I got to see all the different Jewish communities. I got to see Hasidim and Yeshivish and modern Orthodox and Hamish Yidin and how they related to Judaism and how it was essential, even though they had very, very different practices. I remember seeing all the kids who used to come when I was playing with the Satmar Hasidic band in in, uh, in Williamsburg, and they'd all be, you know, lined up in front of the band. And, you know, the, the one of the, the musicians was, Avec, Avec, it was too close. But if the parents said something to them, they listened. If they said, you have to come and do this, they listened. You know, I go into a supermarket, someone would pick something up, and, a, 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 you know, an orthodox, a little orthodox kid, the mother would say, it's not kosher. They wouldn't cry and whine. I was raised that you, you cry and whine until you get what you want. So th that really <laughs> made an impression on me, too. There was something that the way the children were raised, and, and, and they really understood that there was something greater than them, too. It was very eye-opening. I hear from your story, like, the Jewish music angle is starting to pick up for you, and you're seeing you can build a whole 
career around it, but what's going on religiously for you at this point? There wasn't a lot. I didn't have any type of, of, of set religious structure in my life, although I did have, uh, as I always had, a deep belief in a higher being. And as this went on, and I was around people who would unabashedly talk about God, that a certain recording of John Coltrane called The Love Supreme started to become more integral in, in my worldview because you know he uh, had a religious awakening and he sort of came out with this record. And the great thing about uh, LPs is that you know they had great liner notes. You didn't need reading glasses to read them. Um, and uh, it's a dear listener, praise be to God to whom all praises do. And one day it just like dawned on me, wait a second. That's my bar mitzvah, Baruch et Hashem Avarach, and there he's, he's writing. Now this is John Coltrane, my hero, mm-hmm. and I started thinking, well, maybe there's something more to this, and I became, I started doing a lot of reading about spirituality, and particularly Jewish spirituality. And then through the um, the, the influence of the Piamentas, I started thinking about maybe I should think about not just casually dating, but I should date Jewish women and think about having a Jewish family. I didn't, couldn't even see myself being a, a, a husband or a father. I just thought, you know, music was so all-encompassing. Um, I remember Yossi, uh, all of said to me, maybe the next day after I met him, said, Greg, you have a girlfriend. Yeah. Is she Jewish? No. <laughs> Get rid of her immediately. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, eventually I started dating exclusively Jewish women. And then I realized that the Jewish way of dating is so much better. You don't go out to dinner or you go to a movie. You go sit and have a cup of coffee. And I became really good at being able to find out in two minutes whether I could ever marry this person that I was talking to. And it saves so much time. And plus, you know, you (laughs) you can say, well, you know what? I, I know somebody you would enjoy meeting, you know, and it's and, and and there's no time wasted in it. So finally, you know, when I was uh, in this mode where I was looking to get married, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted it to be someone Jewish and that I, I sort of knew that I would be moving in a more observant direction. So the people that you're meeting, they're coming from observant families or they're people that are Jewish and are open to becoming more religious? Mm. Maybe. I didn't get resumes from people I didn't know. They were Jewish. They seemed nice. I mean, anybody that would want to go out with a a, a jazz musician um, had to be, you know, a little different anyway. <laughs> but I, it was frustrating because I couldn't meet anybody. I'd go out and people would fix me up or I'd meet people. Um, and But once you're serious and you realize what you're looking for, you can find out very quickly, this is not for me, she's not for me, she's not for me. And I started getting, you know, a little frustrated. So then, you know, Yossi said, well, you have to daven for it. Oh, you have to daven for it. He said, sure, you know, ask Hashem. Hashem will help you. So I started davening. And I was putting on tefillin. I left out this whole story about, you know, how Avi Piamenta tricked me into getting tefillin. But uh, anyway, I was putting on tefillin every day. And that was it. I didn't go to shul. I just put on tefillin, put them on, Shema Yisrael. I think by that time I might have been saying Shema Yisrael, you know, once a day. A couple of weeks later, Yossi said, no, did you meet her yet? I said, no. He says, you're doing something wrong. He says, <laughs> I explained. I say, please, God, send me a wife. And he slams down and says, no, you don't say please. You demand it. He says this, you demand it. So I started being a little more emphatic about it. And really shortly after, 
November 19th, 1988. I'm playing at a, a club in the East Village, and I see this woman sitting over there, and I realized that was it. I said, thank you, God. Walked right up to her at the end of the, of the set, and uh, we were married less than six months later. So she must have thought the same thing seeing you across the room if you knew right away. Uh, you have to ask her, but uh, she didn't slap me or anything like that. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, if I hadn't gone to Phyllis, she wouldn't have gone out with me because she was um, already observant at the time. And, uh, we, you know, we got to know each other and it was pretty clear. I, I tried my hardest to find a reason that I shouldn't marry her and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't. And I guess that's a good sign. And years later, <laughs> I still can't find any reason. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I married above my station for sure. It's really, uh, it's been great. Very nice. So the prayers pay off and now you have a woman in your life that you can plan a family with and all this good stuff. Now I want to go back to the musical side of you and let's bring your music to life by playing a few clips. So we're going to start with a melody that I think our listeners will be pretty familiar with, even though there's no words when they listen to this. So let's hear it. I know that's got to be good because despite the fact that there's no words in it, I can still tell that it's Eliyahu Hanavi. Hmm. So tell me how you approach interpreting like such an iconic song like that and how you put your own spin on it. I was uh, introduced to it, I think, when I was very young, and we would maybe sing it at the Passover Seder or something. Didn't know that it was something that uh, people would sing at Havdalah. I, d- I didn't know what Havdalah was growing up. And... I must have been on tour with uh, with Hasidic New Wave, and we started uh, playing that tune. And that actually was recorded live in Cologne, Germany. And uh, it was a beautiful melody. And I ended up using that um, as part of a score for that I wrote for the Carolyn Dorfman Dance Company. And she did a whole piece, and that became the main theme of the piece. And I wrote a lot of other music that sort of fit in with it. That was great. Let's go to a second clip now. So we have one called Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. Let's hear a little bit of that.
this is inspired by Ezekiel's vision in the Haftor that's read for Shavuos. Is that the connection here? Yes, it is. I mean, that was the, the middle of it. So that was based on a traditional African-American spiritual. And I started off playing the melody straight that people could do. A lot of people know that tune. And it just sort of built up into the frenzy. So uh, that's where we, we picked up that clip. But um, I did a... Uh, a recording on John Zorn's label where I explored a lot of the themes of Ezekiel and I wrote pieces that were sort of a, um, a musical midrash and trying to go into the different places suggested by the text. I even did some other uh, pieces where I wrote music based on the actual trope and, uh, and and use that to get in there you know, through the sound, through the imagery that's suggested. You know, Ezekiel has the most uh, bizarre imagery probably of anything in Navi. Uh, so it was a, a lot of good um, fuel for the creative fires there. <laughs> for sure. And let's do a third and final clip. And this one is called Shofar. El Rosh Hahar Aleh ושופר גדול כך, ושא עיניך וראה ענבות העם הדח. ובשופר הגדול תקע, תקיעה תרועה ושברים, וברגליך ריקה וירעשו הכפרים. והקולות יעלו בלולים עד שרשי הנשמות ויתגלגלו הגלגולים לבנות את השממות ויתעוררו הנרדמים ניני האריות המשחקים בזרמים ושוגים בהזיות So I got to ask you a two-part question coming out of this clip. As your career is taking off, I got to believe you're starting to play in some really, really cool venues. So I want to know what a couple of those places are. But at the same time, you're becoming more observant. And I got to believe you're bumping up against this issue of Friday night and Saturday performance, which is like prime time for performing artists. Mm -hmm. So where are you playing and how are you dealing with this issue? I was playing a lot in New York, and depending on the project, and now all the music I play doesn't sound like this. I mean, I play a lot of straight-ahead jazz music, and I had a wonderful group playing uh, that was based on 20s and 30s classic jazz. We had a big following, and I enjoyed playing early R&B. And so I was playing a lot in clubs like the Cat Club, playing in clubs like the Red Blazer, uh, playing in clubs uh, like Under Acme. As the years went on, I, I, you know, I played at, uh, at the Blue Note and at, at Carnegie Hall and Symphony Space. I played at the Village Vanguard, different types of things over my career. Uh, I would do uh, some Jewish venues. I was also touring a lot. I'd be playing at jazz festivals in Europe, in France, and in Germany, and Holland, and Spain, and Eastern Europe. I did a lot of playing in, uh, in Poland, and Hungary, and, and Slovakia. I'd also play in, especially locally, in places that even if, um, you know, I couldn't even break even because I needed to play the music, and that's where we you know, worked out new ideas. Um, so that was the, the first question. The second question about the observance. So I was flirting with observance for a few years, starting in the 
in the early 90s. I got married in 89. My wife was Shomer Shabbat. You know, I lived in a kosher home from that point on. Although, you know, Friday night and Saturday afternoon, those were big money days for me. And gradually I started seeing how valuable Friday night was at home, first with my wife and then when we had children with the small children. So I said, I'll have a compromise. I'm not going to do any commercial music on Friday night, but if it was art, I would do that. So that was my first phase of feeling a separation between Kodesh and Chol. And, um, but then, you know, Saturday afternoon, so I would still go out, and even Saturday nights, especially in, you know, from, you know, after Pesach until uh, the clocks change, you know, Saturday night was, was late too. You'd have to start before Shabbat was over. So I, I did that. And uh, uh, the, the, the line in the sand came in 1999 when I had the opportunity to perform on December 31st, 1999, the, the millennium, Y2K, Friday night, December 31st. That's a big gig. Yeah, and we had just moved from Jersey City to Livingston, New Jersey, because of a Jewish community. We made the decision. We put our two kids at the time, they have three now, in a Jewish school. And at that point, I said, you know what? This is the test. I'm not going to do it. And I've been Shomer Shabbat ever since. And not surprisingly, but ironically, the following few months after that, my career started taking off. I got my own record contract. I had been I had a record contract with a group, but now I had the opportunity to do my own. I started getting more engagements and, and I was able to cut out a lot of the commercial music. I stopped playing so many weddings and and it was, it was really great. And I think it was directly connected to my commitment, you know. And, and I mean, we hear, it's almost like lip service. Oh, yeah, you know, you, you know, do these things and, and then uh, Hashem will, will take care of you. But, you know, sometimes it's okay to, you know, to try it out. Right. I, I've, I've heard this story now a few times from our guests where you're trying to sort of live in both worlds because you're becoming observant in phases and then it comes to a head like it did in your story. And at first you're probably thinking, why did New Year's have to be a Friday night? It could have been a Tuesday and this all would have been fine. Yeah. But you have to make this tough decision. And that's the first moment that you're making like a faith-based decision, right? It's not the logical thing to do. It's, but sometimes, you know, it, 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 in a way it is logical because sometimes in order to really get something done, you have to paint yourself into a corner. And at that point, it's sink or swim. Being a professional musician, especially a jazz musician, is like going through life with one hand tied behind your back. And especially if it's more esoteric jazz, the audience is small, you know, lifestyle. But now, not playing on Shabbat and eating kosher and all of this, so now you have two hands tied behind your back and your feet are bound as well. <laughs> and it, it sort of forces you to take control of your career, you know? So at that point, I was a leader. And I realized that if it's my band, it's my project, then it doesn't matter that I don't play on Friday night or I don't play on Jewish holidays or I don't play on Saturday night six months out of the year. And it worked out. And nobody ever said anything. And I, I had to let go of my dream of, you know, playing with uh, Horace Silver or uh, Art Blakey or a lot of these touring jazz masters that would hire young guys and work them hard. Obviously, it wouldn't work out with my schedule. 
but I could get this just as much satisfaction playing on my own terms and and not compromising in, in my uh, you know my musical goals. And, and thank God it worked out. So now we have like a pretty clear picture of how things work out for you in terms of becoming observant, and we also have a sense of how your musical career is going. But there's a third piece of your story we haven't gotten into yet, because I mentioned in the intro that you're a pulpit rabbi. So how does this come in? Because it, it doesn't seem like it's going to enter into the story at this point. <laughs> well, I had no designs to become a pulpit rabbi. I did at one point realize that I was an Amaharetz. I realized what it's like to not have a Jewish education. And I wanted to do something about that. So I started reading books, and when I moved to Livingston, I was very fortunate that the synagogue that uh, we affiliated with, and I moved to Livingston specifically to be part of a congregation, Eitz Chaim in Livingston, and, and, was, and specifically because I wanted Rabbi Shlomo Krupka, Oliver Shalom, to be my rabbi. I was all ready to live in a different town, and I met him by chance, and that was a, it was life-changing. So they had a program on Wednesday nights, and a kollel in Livingston that was based in the other synagogue in Livingston come, came to our synagogue on Wednesday nights, and you could get a chavruta. And I started learning with a chavruta. These guys would come from Lakewood on Wednesday nights, and there was also a, a few guys learning in a kollel. They came from Lakewood every single day. And I uh, started learning with uh, Rabbi Baruch Green, a very uh, dynamic young man. And uh, it blew me away. It was so deep. I had never seen, I never learned Gemara with somebody. I look at an art scroll Gemara before. But, as, you know, and somebody who doesn't know much is not going to get much out of an art scroll Gemara. And uh, so we didn't learn from an art scroll. We learned from a real Gemara. And I was hanging on for dear life at that point, just trying to, <laughs> to follow him. And, you know, no punctuation, no vowels, you know. But he would explain things in a way that I could participate and once he translated for me, I was able to to process the ideas somewhat, and it was so enjoyable. It was so enjoyable, and it made me want to learn more. So, I started making it a a, a regular part of, uh, of of my life, and I would be invited by the members of the Colo to come during the week anytime I had free time to drop by because it was a community Colo, and so I started coming by, and after a while, I was learning for an hour every day. And uh, and meanwhile, I was still doing a lot of touring at the time, and the, your touring is not so glamorous. You get up early in the morning, and in Europe, especially, you're on the train all day long, and the, the, the promoters who plan these tours seem to like look at the map and say, well, how can we make it as stressful for the musicians? So you're, you're <laughs> always there, even though they're like countries that are uh, two hours apart, you're on the train 10 hours, 11 hours a day. So what do you do? You sleep. Some people, you know, would uh, do things that uh, actually are becoming uh, increasingly legal in this country. But back then, that was, a uh, you know, some way that people would pass the time. Or I started studying medieval rabbinic texts. And someone put the idea in my head that, you know, I should really study uh, Isser Vahetar, and that it's a good way to learn about how Jewish law works. And I remember talking to Rabbi Krupka, and I told him I was doing this, and he says, why do you want to learn Isser Vahetar? Do you want to be a rabbi? He said, that's if you want to be a rabbi. Do you want to be a rabbi? And I said, no, no. And then I said, well, yeah, maybe. I, I just want to learn. 
So next thing I knew, I was learning Isavaheter, and, and two years later, I, I got uh, my first smicha in Isavaheter. Um, I had a chavrusa at the at the kollel, an older guy, he was the oldest guy in the kollel, um, Rabbi Yaakov Kogor, dear friend. Not only did he teach me Isavaheter, but he taught me how to read. He taught me how to read a Gemara. He taught me how to read a Tour and Shulchan Aruch, and. Uh, it was really great. So 2006, um, he came to Israel with me. He had never been to Israel. His kids had been, but he worked really hard so his kids could have, you know, the normal Jewish life, and he sacrificed a lot. So he came with me, and uh, it, was, it was really a thrill. And so now I was, uh, I was Rabbi Greg Wall. I remember I got the Teuda at the Kotel, and the first thing I did was drive to Kfar Chabad, Avi Piamenta, was living there. He had moved from uh, from Brooklyn to go back to Israel. And I show him the Tehuda, and he looks at it. And he starts screaming, Mashiach! He couldn't believe that me, <laughs> you know, was now uh, a, a rabbi. But at that point, it was a sense of accomplishment, but I didn't want to be a congregational rabbi. I just I enjoyed what I was doing. I loved touring. A couple of years later, a friend of mine calls me and said that he's Greg. I have a shul for you. I, said, I don't want a shul, you know. I want to play. I just like learning Torah, and I was studying at the time. I was actually in the kolo half a day learning. Uh, and he said, "Well, this shul is in the East Village." And I paused for a second. I said, "Hmm, that sounds interesting." And next thing I knew, I was the rabbi of the East Village. It was really wonderful. I loved it. My family hated it because we didn't have a place to live. We'd have to borrow an apartment, walk up eight flights of stairs, and eat all our meals in the shul. Not fun. So in 2012, I left and uh, went back to just playing music full time. And one of my congregants from the East Village sent me an email, and he said uh, his community where he grew up in Westport, Connecticut, was looking for a rabbi. And then next thing I knew, I was the rabbi in Westport, Connecticut. But you also said to me just before we came on the air that you would be willing to play something on the air for us. So you have a musical instrument with you and then maybe something you could play for us? Sure. picked a really nice selection for us so tell our listeners about it go down moses let my people go 
probably my first introduction to the concept of uh, of liberation was mm-hmm. through the African American musical tradition. And I have to say, a lot of what I know about the about the Bible, about spirituality, I got through the complementary lifestyle to uh, to jazz music and African American music. All right, let's go to the lightning round. So what advice would you give to a young musician who's getting really into playing but is also becoming religious about how to balance those two worlds? My advice would be is follow your heart and do what you think is right and be sure that you're ready to give everything to both, to being Jewish and to being an artist. Beautifully said. So tell us from the people around playing today who are a couple of your favorite musicians. I like... um, saxophonist Chris Potter. I like a lot of the people that um, that I play with. The great guitarist Kenny Wessel. I love his playing. So what is the coolest compliment that someone ever said to you like immediately after a performance when they come up to you on stage or afterwards? You really spoke to me. You know, I was, you really transported me someplace. And you could ask me what's the strangest thing someone ever said to you after you played? Okay, so what's the strangest thing someone ever said to you after a performance? I was performing at the Ashkenaz Festival in Toronto uh, in the in the 2000s sometime. Some guy comes up to me after he says, wow, that was great. I haven't heard anything like that since Coltrane. How'd you like to jam with Rav Cook? <laughs> <laughs> and what'd you say? I said, sure, who's Rav Cook? <laughs> and that led to that the chauffeur piece that you played was actually from a recording that i did where i wrote music to accompany dramatic readings of of rav cook's mystical poetry but that was uh the strangest thing someone said to me at the end rabbi wall you are officially out of the lightning round and i want to thank you for joining me today on saturday to shabbos jeff it's been my pleasure thanks so much for having me Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.